This talk is about Swami Vivekananda's practical Vedanta. When we read about Swami Vivekananda, inevitably one of the thoughts that has come to our minds inevitably is that uh, I wish I had met him. I wish I had seen him. You know, we think that would make a very great difference. Well, we are about a little more than a hundred years too late for that. But the great thing is Swami Vivekananda's works, the complete works are with us. And Swami Vivekananda lives in his talks. There is a special power in that. You, you cannot deny it. I have studied the scriptures of Vedanta, of different traditions, of different religions of the world, writings of philosophers and saints, and yet there is something unique and powerful about when I, when I read those words. Romain Roland said that uh, he was writing at a distance of a few decades after Swami Vivekananda passed away. So in a, reading these words at a distance of maybe 30 or 40 years after Swami Vivekananda passed away, he says, even now we get a, an electric shock reading these words. So there is a special power, even now when you read it. So that's an encounter with Vivekananda, when we read Vivekananda. When I was preparing for this talk, I was rereading Vivekananda's practical Vedanta lectures, which he gave in, uh, the talks which he gave in London about 120 years ago. And still, you can feel something being communicated, something powerful and original being communicated there. He starts off with a bang, as usual. Vedanta, no matter how grand a philosophy, no matter how intricate its me metaphysics and epistemology, he says it must be practical. Otherwise, it's just intellectual gymnastics. And not only must it be practical, but how practical in what sense? He makes a startling claim. Swami Vivekananda says, the fictitious difference that we have between religion, spirituality on the one hand, and our life in the world on the other, this fictitious difference must disappear. The difference that we have between going to the temple or the church or the mosque or coming to the Vedanta Society on a Sunday and the rest of the week, that must disappear. This gap must be bridged. That is what he means by making Vedanta practical. Vedanta has, in a sense, always been practical. You will find in the original, the Upanishads, upon which the philosophy of the Vedanta is based, that often you come across kings, princes, uh, powerful people who are engaged in the, the job of administering entire kingdoms. Uh, as Swami Vivekananda puts it, absolute monarchs, not figureheads, you know, the royalty which we find today. And I can't help but telling this little story, I think I've told it earlier also, what happened was, uh, several years ago, I was in Calcutta Club, uh, which is a British institution set up in Calcutta during the British Raj. And I had gone there to give a talk to the Rotary, the Rotary International, they had uh, asked me to give a talk there. And, uh, and being a, an institution of the Raj, they still have some quaint old customs. You must, be well, you must be dressed in a particular, there's a dress code. You certainly can't go in wearing this. <laughs> and I went in like this, and I could see the manager and the assistant manager whispering to each other. They were probably thinking he, the, the Swami has come for donations or something like that maybe. So he came up very politely. Can I help you, Swami? I said, I'm an invited speaker. I'm going to speak here at this conference. Then he said, oh, that's all right then. <laughs> and then I, went, I was early. I went and sat there uh, before other delegates had come. And this lady who was sitting next to me, uh, maybe in her 50s or 60s, very imposing, powerful personality, it looked like that. And she was speaking to me. And we got talking about the lecture I had given the week before that, which was in a place called Burdwan University. Those who are from West Bengal, they know it's a, it's a well-known university. And um, um, I, I said I had given a lecture, and she said, which hall did you give your lecture in? I described the hall. I didn't know why she was asking. She smiled and said, oh, that was my room. I said, your room? The hall was about thrice the size of this, this, this hall. Your room? Now it turns out 
that the Burdwan University is actually a palace, the palace of the Maharaja of Burdwan, who donated it after the uh, independence of the country to the university. And she is the princess of Burdwan. And she, that used to be her, the little girl's room. She said that was, that was our, our, uh, our winter palace. So it, it's hot in summer, so in winter the royal family used to stay there. Now the funny thing happened afterwards, when the talk started, I quoted Swami Vivekananda without you know, thinking what I was saying. I said, she was sitting in the audience and I said, Swami Vivekananda said, the absolute the monarchs of the past, they found it a practical philosophy, Vedanta, and they were absolute monarchs, people with real power, not like the kings and princesses of today who are, who are figureheads, you know, just mere symbols. <laughs> and, and she was sitting there and this gentleman who was sitting next to her sort of poked her like this and said, he's talking about you. <laughs> I bit my tongue the moment I said it, but it was too late. I hope she didn't mind. But it is true. When you think about the Bhagavad Gita, who teaches the Bhagavad Gita? Or, or Krishna. He is not a monk. Where is he teaching it? On the battlefield. Not in an ashram or the Vedanta society. Whom is he teaching it to? Not to a monk or not to uh, somebody who, was, you know, who joined a yoga studio. He's teaching it to a person in crisis an administrator, a king, Arjuna. Swami Vivekananda says, if those people found it worth their while to cultivate this philosophy of Vedanta, we too can do it. How much more so that we can do it? We have compared, to, Swami Vivekananda says, compared to Arjuna and Krishna, we have all the time in the world. He says, um, you know, we have so much time on our hands. If we put our mind to it, it, we have got enough time to practice 500 or 200 ideals in our lives. So, the Bhagavad Gita, when you look at the Bhagavad Gita, it is a call to action. It is not airy metaphysics. It is not just withdrawing and meditation. All of that is there. Philosophy is there. Meditation is there. Everything is there. But it is primarily a call to action. Bhagavad Gita is a call to action. What kind of action? Not the kind we are used to. That's very interesting. The philosophy of action in Vedanta. Inaction is, is condemned in the Bhagavad Gita. Withdrawing from action, running away from the world, which is what Arjuna wanted to do. Krishna told him, see, if you run away from action, what will happen is, you go and sit and you pretend to meditate in the Himalayas, your mind will be dwelling on, on the world. What happened to the battle after I ran away? Who got the kingdom? Who won the war? You, will, you cannot but think of that because you have not yet transcended action. The way is not to run away from action. The way also is not action with passion, with desire, which is, what, why, which is why most of us act, which is why Arjuna was there in the first place. The prince was there to fight the battle, to take revenge on the, on the villains. Uh, to take the kingdom which was rightfully his. So those are all worldly goals. Now Krishna says that too is not action because that action will bind you to this world. Moment we act with desire, we will get the consequences. If we overstep the limits of morality, immorality, that is called adharma in Sanskrit. And the result of that is dukkha, suffering. If we act within the bounds of morality, even then, the result will be what you call sukha, happiness. But that also binds us. Swami Vivekananda says, chains, though they be of gold, are not less strong to bind. Even good action binds you to this world. The way is to transcend action, not by inaction, not by action with desire, but teacher, uh, the Krishna teaches action without desire. When we perform action not for our selfish ends, when we perform action for the welfare of the world, because it is the thing to do, it is the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the loving thing to do, without any, anything to gain for, from it from, for ourselves, Krishna says, that is action. He defines yoga, not tying yourself up into knots, You know, there's this 
it was a cartoon of a person in a yoga studio. He's demonstrating what he learned in the yoga studio. So he goes into a particularly complicated asana and he shows off. And the people around him are admiring. That's wonderful. And after some time he says, okay, you can stop doing it now. And then that person says, well, I didn't know, learn how to stop doing it. I don't know how to come out of this now. <laughs> that, he, Krishna defines yoga as skill in action. Yoga, karma, su kaushalam. What, what would you mean by skill in action? Not what we, we would normally think as skill in action. You know, doing things expertly. Shankaracharya in his commentary says, skill in action is that, that action which normally binds us to this world, we perform the action in such a way that that same action will set us free. That action which the ordinary person is bound by, how do you perform that so that that very action sets you free? That is skill in action. And how, how do you do that? You do that by performing action for the welfare of others, for action as a worship of, of God. You worship God in the temple with flowers and incense and food offerings and whatnot. You worship God, the, as we just heard the beautiful choir uh, sang this, the living God. Worship the living God. So worship God in your business, at home, in the school, in your family, everywhere. You can worship the living God. How do you do that? That is the theme of the Bhagavad Gita. There's also the theme of practical Vedanta. Disinterested action. I can see, I know, I know the question which is there in your minds and that's the question which was there in my mind also when, when I heard about this. See, one thing constantly nags us a little bit. It sounds good, but the thing is, why would I do anything if I don't have anything to gain out of it? I mean, I might force myself to do it because it sounds good, it's a nice idea, but still, would there be any real motive power behind it? Would my heart be in it if I don't really want anything out of it? So I had this question. And there's a very senior Swami who has passed away now, Swami Ananyananda. He was in Delhi, Ramakrishna Mission. I was a new brahmacharya, a novice. I had joined, it was 21 years ago. And I was visiting New Delhi Ashram and I was escorting the old Swami. He had a bad knee. So I was escorting him from the temple to his room in the evening, just before meditation. And as we walked down, I asked this question. Why should people do anything without, if they don't have anything to gain from it? If they don't have any interest uh, in it? He didn't say anything. As we walked into his room, he turned around and just before closing the door, he looked at me and smiled and said this, I can never forget it. It's a solution to this, the answer to this question. So precise, just a phrase. He smiled at me and he said, disinterested action, my boy, not uninterested action. In English, if you look at the dictionary, lack of interest, there are two words, disinterested and uninterested. Uninterested means I have no interest in it. I, I mean, I do it in a lackadaisical manner just because I have to do it, I'm being pushed to do it. I, have, I don't really like doing it. I have, there's no enthusiasm. Disinterested action is, 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 a, is a very interesting word. It means the party who has no, in, no personal motive or interest in it. He may have all the enthusiasm, but nothing personal to gain from it. No personal acts to grind there. That is disinterested disinterest, action. So there can be tremendous enthusiasm and there should be. There should be love and enthusiasm in service, but no particular personal gain from it. In fact, we should make sure that we are not gaining something personal from it. So that is the idea. Another question. Swami, that's okay for you. You are a monk, so you don't, ha you don't have a salary or something like that. You, you don't take anything for, for your action. But we work in the world. So when I, a teacher in a school asked me, I teach and I get my salary from that and I need my salary. So if I do that work and I take the salary, doesn't it become... Uh, work with desire and the answer is very simple what is the purpose behind that work is the purpose the money itself you need the money when you work you will get money why not we need money too you'll find out when you when you leave you know you're encouraged to donate <laughs> so <laughs> 
So that does not make it work with desire. What makes it work with desire is the attitude behind it. And that brings us to a very interesting thing I learned from a Swami in, in um, Haridwar on the bank of the Ganges. He said something very beautiful. He said, in our lives, in human life, there are three streams. In Hindi he said, teen dhara hai. Three streams flow through us all the time. The stream of knowledge, jnana. The stream of um, action, karma. And another word he used, a Sanskrit word, bhavadhara. Bhava can be inadequately translated as attitude. So, knowledge, work, and attitude. He said, I am not interested in what you know. I am not interested in what you do. Tell me what is your bhava, what is your attitude. And then to explain, he said, what makes a difference in spiritual life is not what you know. It's not even what you do. It's why you do it. What is the purpose behind action? And there's some beautiful examples. A person may be a pundit, may be learned in the scriptures. And uh, he, may, he may be doing this uh, very religious work of worshipping in a temple. Maybe a, a pujari, a priest in a temple. So the work that he's doing is religious. His learning, his knowledge is also scriptural, religious. But suppose when he is performing the worship, all he's thinking about is, so uh, how much will the collection be today? And with that money, I have to put a new roof on my house and put my children into a better school. Now the bhava, the stream of the attitude, the stream there, it is flowing straight to the world. He said in, in uh, Hindi, uska bhava samsar ki or hai. His bhava is towards samsara, towards the world. What will he get? His knowledge is religious. His actions are religious. Bhava is samsara. What will he attain? He will attain samsara. He will attain samsara. From birth to death he will go. The Upanishad says, Mrityu samutyu maapnavati. He goes from death to death. And there was this another, an example, a real example. Not a hypothetical example. There was this uh, person who is to sweep the Holy Mother's house in Jairambati. And I have heard this story from a senior Swami. He used to sweep. And all the Swamis knew him. One day, the old man did not come. And then they heard he was ill. The Swami in charge of the ashram called him and said, You need not come anymore, sir. We will send your, the little bit you earn, we will send it to your house. You are old, you retire now. And that old man said, no Swami, don't do this. Many, many years ago when I was a little boy, I used to do the same work, a young boy. And the Holy Mother was living here. And I used to see so many people coming here, getting initiated by her, people going into ecstasy, talking about, talk about the vision of God and so many things. And a little boy, and I was curious and I wanted it too. And one day I asked the Holy Mother, Mother, will I not get anything? And she said, of course, my boy, you will get everything. But you go on doing this work. This work which you are doing, you go on doing it. And he said, so I do it. Not for the money you pay me. I do it as a worship of the Holy Mother. I do it because that lady had told me to do it so many decades ago. So please let me do it. And he went on doing it till one day he really could not come again. His daughter came and the Swamis went to his bedside where he, the old man lay dying. And the story goes that at the point of death, he had a vision of the Holy Mother, the Divine Mother, that you have not forgotten me, you have come for me. So, Bhava, what was his knowledge? I don't think he had uh, even passed high school. What was the work that he was doing? He was sweeping, not even the temple, outside the temple. This is a janitor. But Bhava, the attitude, what was he doing it for? He was doing it for God. And what will he attain? Not samsara. He will attain God. That reminds me, though it's not exactly this uh, thought, but the attitude is similar. It seems in NASA, when uh, NASA was getting ready for the first uh, space, the moon mission, President Kennedy, who had promised that we shall put a man on the moon in 10 years, 
he came to visit NASA in one of his several uh, inspection tours. So he came to visit NASA and he was walking, he was being escorted around, shown the preparations and meeting people. And there was this janitor who was standing there and the President of the United States walked past him and looked at him, came forward to shake hands with him and said, my man, what do you do here? And the janitor said, sir, I'm trying to put a man on the moon. <laughs> you see? That, that is the sense of what I'm doing. And it's true. You're part of that. Similarly, whatever we do in life, we can convert that into worship of God. Hence, Vedanta becomes practical. Swami Vivekananda says, where are these two tendencies in our life? He gives a caution, a warning here. Two tendencies in our life. One tendency is to drag the ideal down to our life. The other tendency is to elevate the life to the ideal. And then Swamiji says, the first one is the great temptation of our lives. Anytime anybody comes with an easy religion, says what we want in life, what we desire in life, if somebody says that is good enough and that is religion and makes excuses for us, we are all ready to accept him. That kind of religion, that kind of teaching easily finds large numbers of followers. But in the long run, that will lead nowhere. What we need to do, Swami Vivekananda says, is to struggle to raise our life to the ideal. And he says, Vedanta is practical in the second sense. It is practical in the sense of the ideal, not practical in the sense of a compromise. He says, normally, what we mean by practical is, the things which we like, we consider that to be practical. What we like doing, we consider that as something practical. Uh, he says to the a shoemaker, there's nothing as practical as making shoes, some, nothing as great as leather. Uh, so, and he says to the thief, there's nothing more practical than stealing. It's true. And the second thing is, he says, not only what we like doing, what we can do, what we are accustomed to doing, what we find easy and natural to us, that's what we consider practical. Swami Vivekananda says, Vedanta, however, is practical in the sense of the ideal. To attain to the ideal and manifest it in our lives, that is, that's the sense in which Vedanta is practical. Now, what is the ideal of Vedanta? What is the ideal of Vedanta? And Swami Vivekananda puts it very directly. The ideal can be put simply in a few words. You are divine. That thou art. You are God. Tremendous, a, a bombshell. Swami Vivekananda says, the Vedanta, the Upanishads declare with one voice that the human, the individual, is none other than the divine. God is our inner reality. God is the reality of which we are unaware. We say, no, that cannot be right. It can't be right because we are these little bodies. We are born when we age and we die. We are happy and we are sad and we, we attain something. We lose a lot. And that's what our life is, and we shall pass away soon and die, and that's what it is. It just isn't so that we are, we are God. That's what we think. Mark Twain once said, it is not what you do not know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know that it just ain't so. That's what gets you into trouble. <laughs> yes. We, don't, we, don't, we think it's impossible. How is it possible that we are God? And Vedanta purports to show you, to demonstrate to you, and to lead you step by step to the realization that your true nature is nothing but God and God itself. There are so many ways, there are enormous, and there are a number of procedures called prakriyas in Vedanta. Vedanta will tell you, look at the distinction between the seer and the seen. This entire universe is an object of your experience. Whatever you see, the world is something that you see and you are the one experiencing the world. Even the body, which we consider ourselves to be, isn't it something that we experience? We can see the body, we can feel the body, especially when you have a bellyache or a headache. And Swami Vivekananda was asked once, aren't you ever serious, Swami? And Swami said, yes, when I have a tummy ache, I'm serious. Uh, so, when, when the body is, when it hurts, when we are sick, we feel the body. So, 
so the body is an object of experience and we are that which experiences the body. Even our minds, the thoughts, happiness, sadness, do we not experience it? So we are the experiencer of our minds too. What is it that you are other than the body, other than the mind? There is something. There is a consciousness which is watching as in this, this world of our waking. We, we experience this world. You are in the Vedanta society now. After some time you will go back. If you are uh, like me in Indian, you take a little nap in the afternoon. Although Vedanta has a tendency of putting people into naps also once in a while, you know. <laughs> and this whole thing goes away from your experience and a world, a dream world comes into, in, in its place. And the consciousness which was watching the waking world is the same consciousness which experiences the dream world. Very soon our sleep melts into the deep, dreamless sleep. And that which was watching the dream and the waking world also experiences the nothingness of dreamless sleep. Otherwise, you, we would not wake up and say, I dreamt and then I slept deeply, peacefully. I had a relaxing, I slept like a log. But then what slept like a log if I was not there? Something was there. So there is an unchanging consciousness. And that's just one day. The Panchadashi says, this consciousness as day rolls away, day after day, bodies, age, time passes, month after month, year after year, the body dies, the consciousness remains. Another body takes up. The Panchadashi says in a grand verse, ages roll by, centuries and millennia roll by, the consciousness is unchanging. Body after body. We think that we are human beings. You have come to the Vedanta society in search of a spiritual experience. But the truth is we are spiritual beings having a human experience. That was what Vedanta is trying to tell us. Look at this body. Physical body. They call it Dhanamaya. Made of food. This body is made of food. Deeper within are the life forces. We breathe. Blood is flowing through our veins. Uh, food is being assimilated. Uh, we are taking in oxygen from the environment outside, converting, using it to convert food into energy, building up our bodies. This is life force. It's called pranamaya. Deeper than this are our emotions, memories, thoughts, perceptions. That is called the mind, manomaya. Go deeper, further than that. The intellect which understands, which knows, the knowing quality within us. Deeper than that is the complete blankness and peace of deep sleep or the deepest meditation. That's called the Anandamaya. And Upanishad says, even beyond that is what you really are. Existence, consciousness, bliss. Shining through these five sheets, these five bodies. So in various ways, through Panchakosha, which are, I'm just using the technical terms, the analysis of the five bodies, Avastatraya Viveka, analysis of the three states of waking, dreaming and deep sleep. Through Drigdrishya Viveka, the analysis of the seer and the seen. And in so many ways, the Upanishad tries to show you that you are something apart from the body and mind which we consider ourselves to be. We think that's all we are. You are something much more than that. And that is the same as God in the Upanishads. Swami Vivekananda says, in, in uh, one of his talks that that never becomes an object of knowledge that is what which knows everything and then he says that you must not go away with the idea that it is unknown and unknowable rather it is the most known of all just think about it this way I am not speaking in riddles I will just demonstrate it to you how do you know that I am here Swami I see you how do you know everybody else is here the other people are here Swami I see them Okay. How do you know that you are here? Will you say, oh Swami, I see myself, that's why I'm here. No, you don't wait to see yourself. Suppose you close your eyes. If you close, ima imagine, a very simple thing. If you close your eyes, you cannot tell for sure whether I am here or anybody else is here. But one thing you're sure about, you are here. Our own existence does not depend upon um, upon our instruments of knowledge, upon seeing or hearing or thinking or inference, it does not depend upon that. The famous uh, French philosopher Descartes, 
He, did, he analyzed the world of experience and he set aside everything that he could set aside. The world could be false. Even my body could be false. But one thing I cannot set aside is this thinking which is going on. So thinking is there. So I think and therefore I exist. Kojito ergo sum. I think, therefore I exist. The Vedanta says just the opposite. I exist, therefore I think. There is something that shines shining forth. Because even when I do not think, I still exist. And this is so many stories about this. Descartes in a cafe in, in, in Paris jokes. And uh, the waitress comes, Monsieur Descartes, would you like one more coffee? And he says, I think not. And immediately disappeared because he's not. <laughs> <laughs> So there, we do not even depend upon our thinking. You are that which illumines all your thoughts. You are that which illumines the absence of thoughts also. Just as this light it illumines all of us here, when we leave this hall, the same light will illumine the absence of all of us here. You are the light which illumines your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. Shankaracharya says in one place, suppose you doubt this. Somebody doubts that there is such an Atma. Atma. Sanskrit means the one who doubts the existence of such a, of such a uh, self. The self is his own self, the one which, who is doubting. The same self illumines the doubt in the mind. So we are convinced, I am the self, I am consciousness absolute. That conviction is in the mind which is being illumined by the same self. So that, that is something, if you think about it, it's undeniable. I was on a flight a uh, few months ago from Lisbon to Frankfurt and uh, next to me there was this lady, a neuro neuroscientist flying from England to India via Lisbon and Frankfurt and to Bangalore for a conference. And she said, I was raised Anglican Swami and she started talking to me and all through the flight she talked. I thought, well, I have a real uh, person who's really interested in Vedanta. Uh, she asked the most intelligent questions and it was an animated conversation. And time passed just like that. It's only after we landed in the airport and uh, I said goodbye to her. She said, you know, Swami, I'm terrified of flying. So what I do is if I find somebody interesting, I start talking to that person <laughs> so that I can take my mind off flying. <laughs> well, okay. Even for small mercies. <laughs> but what I found interesting was she said, see, I was raised Anglican, but I have no interest in religion. And when I talked to her, this more or less agnostic atheist and a highly trained neuroscientist, after some time she said, Swami, I am not convinced by your Vedanta, but I cannot refute it. I cannot find any way of arguing. Every other religious theory is so easy to refute. It's based on blind faith and belief. And, and uh, it, it's, so, uh, it's so easy to dismiss. But this cannot be refuted. Though she said, I'm not convinced. Um, so Swami Vivekananda says, this self, the consciousness, existence, place, is the most known of all. You know yourself first and then only you know everything else. So in that sense. What are the consequences? Swamiji dwells for some time on the doctrine of sin. He says, you are God himself. The ultimate reality is your own self. You are that. You know, sometimes we say, we, we do anything to avoid that. We say, well, all right, I grant you that my atma, my atma, myself is existence, consciousness, bliss. But what about me? <laughs> the atman is, is you. It's not like your kidney or your heart or your lungs. It's not like my atma and my kidney. You are the atman. You are that. So Swami Vivekananda says, it's the most known of all. It's a sin to call you sinners. It's a sin to call you sinners. You are no different from God himself. Under limitation, under ignorance. So Swami Vivekananda says, Vedanta does not accept sin. But the doctrine of sin is in essence not wrong. What Vedanta says is, it is ignorance. We are unaware of our divine nature. And therefore we fall into error, which in other religions is called sin. In, in Hinduism too, there's an entire doctrine of papa, of adharma, being against morality, 
and giving rise to what is called papa demerit, which, which gives rise to suffering. So the idea, the source is the problem is not sin in itself, the problem is ignorance. And what are we ignorant of? We are ignorant of our true nature, the true nature as existence, consciousness, bliss. So, somebody asked Swami Vivekananda in one of his talks in San Francisco, he says this, this doctrine of sin has been driven so deep into us. The guilt has been driven so deep into us. When I say these things, uh, a preacher came and said to Swamiji, these are terrible things you are talking about. You will suffer for, for this. Swamiji said, what will happen to me? And the, the man said, the good man said, you will go to hell. And the Swamiji said, where will you go to? Oh, of course I will go to heaven. And Swamiji said, okay, I'll go to hell then. Okay. <laughs> and Swamiji says, that shut him up. In another place, Swami Vivekananda says, I have not come to teach you how to go to heaven. In fact, I have come to teach you how to stop going to heaven. You see, in the Hindu idea, when we do bad things, when we commit errors, what are, what are called sins, Suffering builds up. And when that suffering is of a great quantity, that is what is called hell. But that's also limited. One goes there, when one goes through the suffering, one comes back to this human life again. If one is a very virtuous person, and one has done a lot of good, a lot of merit builds up, good karma. And after that, that person, that individual goes to heaven. But even, and that's a wonderful experience, but even that is limited. One again comes back to this human plane, and so the cycle goes on until one gets liberation by the knowledge of one's true nature. Then one is not born again. One is neither born nor one dies. I am reminded of this uh, funny story. Swami Madhavanandaji had come here in the 60s for an operation. He was the president of the order and he was in a New York Vedanta society. And at that time, the whole issue of birth control pills was being debated hotly in American society, it seems. In Swami Yogeshanandaji's book, it's there, The Reminiscences. So some devotees were talking about it and the Swami was sitting at a distance and of course they were talking in hushed voices. They thought the Swami of course won't be interested in such things. And some were saying we are in support of this, some were saying we are against this. And the Swami said, I support it completely. And they were taken aback, Swami, are you are in support? Yes, I am in support of birth control. I am in support of birth control and death control. No birth and no death. <laughs> You transcend this cycle of birth and death. Not going to heaven, that is not the goal. Not trying to escape from hell, that is not the goal. The goal is to realize that you are one with God and be free of this cycle. The second great theme of Vedanta is the oneness of existence. You see, if you are God, if I am God and she is God, if we are all existence, consciousness, bliss, are we different divine entities? Are there many such divine entities? Are there many such existences, consciousnesses and blisses? I don't know if that word exists. And Vedanta says, we have no time to go into the discussions on this, but it says emphatically, there is one reality. The world of uh, this universe is one. We are all one existence, consciousness, bliss. We are all the living beings and non-living beings, the minute and the massive. They're all ultimately one existence consciousness place. We are not parts of that existence consciousness place. Each one of us is the whole of that. How does that work? Well, there are many examples. One example Shankaracharya gives is, imagine a big pot. And why pot? Because that's mostly what they had. You know, when you, whenever you study any ancient civilization and excavate, what comes up? Pottery. You know? If you read about any ancient civilization in history, you will read in your history books, and they made pottery. So <laughs> pots were very common. So they, they had a big pot in which there is a very big lamp which is burning, and there are holes in the pot. From the outside, you will see many rays of light emanating. Similarly, one consciousness blazing through all of us. That is who we are. Not only thou art that, Aham Brahmasmi, I am the infinite. I am not only a consciousness, a witness of this little body and mind, but in my true nature, 
I am the infinite from which this universe emerges, in which this universe shines, into which this universe is absorbed. I am not the consciousness only where I have this dreaming world and this waking world and the dreaming world and in deep sleep it all disappears. But also the entire cosmos, I see it in this form. It is a dream of what we call the dream of Vishnu, the dream of God. And we are identical with that. There is one existence all around. We are one with the universe. And this has so many consequences. There is no birth and death. It is an error. It is foolishness to say that you were ever born or you die. So what are you saying, Swami? Yes, bodies are born and bodies die. Bodies are born and bodies die. It is foolishness to say that you were ever sad or happy. That's incredible. What are you saying? Yes, it is the mind which is sad. It is the mind which is happy. The sky gets colored with, it was colored with gray clouds yesterday, day for yesterday. And then the clouds have gone. If the sky gets identified with those clouds and thinks, I have become dirty. I have to become clean. The sky is mistaken. It's always pristine and pure. The clouds come, the weather comes and the weather goes away. The sun is shining now. It is the same sky. In the blue sky in the daytime with the sun shining, the dark sky with the roiling clouds and sweeping rain, and the nighttime sky of blackness. No appearance there. It is still the same sky. We are exactly like that, subtler than the sky too. That is what we are. No birth and no death. We have this Swami who had many theories about you know, incar reincarnation, whether we are born or not, whether we have one life or many lives. And in the Himalayas, in one of our ashrams, he went on and on about his theories till other Swamis in our ashram got a little bored about it. And they wouldn't listen anymore. Finally, this Swami took his theories out to another great Advaitic scholar who lived in an ashram nearby on, a, on another hill. And this Advaitic Swami, non-dualistic Swami, and our Swami went and said, well, I'll tell you in Hindi, it works beautifully in Hindi and translate. Punar Janma, he started, rebirth, and that Swami replied, Jab Janma hi nahi to Punar Janma kahe ka. When there is no birth, how can you speak about rebirth? Read Mandukya Upanishad. <laughs> so that Swami told me, our Swami, he said, look at these fellows, it's impossible to have a, a, a serious discussion with them. They'll go straight to the highest Advaita. He says, when you are not born, where is the question of rebirth? So, one existence is a central idea of uh, Advaita Vedanta, of practical Vedanta. And it follows from that all the differences that we see, if you are one reality, all the differences that we see, Swami Vivekananda says, they are differences of degree, not of kind. He says the difference between weakness and strength is of degree. The difference between virtue and vice is of degree. The difference between life and death is one of degree, not of kind. It is the same reality appearing as bad and as good, as weak and as strong. Not that they are equal. If we cannot say that the bad and the good are equal, so let me be bad. You know, one of the things about being bad is, it's very interesting. People are happy to perform bad actions, but not to accept the consequences of those actions. People are happy to accept the consequences of good actions, but find it difficult to perform good actions. It's just the other way around. Yes, it is the same reality, whether it is good or bad, but if you want to realize that reality, if you want to attain to that reality, we must evolve from the immoral to the moral, from the weak to the strong, from the bad to the good. That, that of course, goes without saying. So it's a, it's a matter of degree. And hence Swami Vivekananda says, we must not condemn. We must not condemn anybody. Do not condemn the dualist. Do not condemn the atheist. Do not condemn the sinner. But help everybody. Take everybody where he or she is, and if you can give them an upward shove, an upward movement, do that. If you cannot, bow down to them mentally at least and leave them in peace. But do not condemn. No great work is ever done by condemnation. That's why to call people sinners, that's why to tell people that they're completely wrong, it hurts people, it disturbs people, and it does no good to your cause also. So Swami Vivekananda said, do not condemn, because it is God in that form. 
I cannot, I don't have much time, but I cannot but mention this. You know, there is no death also. Death is of the body. There is no separation also. There's a very touching story. So it's really happened. A few, last year, a year before last, do you know there was a tragic incident where uh, Malaysia Airlines, not the one which disappeared over the Pacific, is another one which was moving, which was flying from Netherlands to Malaysia, which was shot down over the Ukraine. Now, a young man wrote an email to me, said, Swami, I have seen your lectures on YouTube. My best friend, she was on that plane and she is dead and gone now. Will I ever be able to meet her again? Now the answer in Vedanta is, you do not get to meet her again in the form that you are and the form she is. That is gone forever. That form arose from the Brahman and has melted back into Brahman. But the reality which is that your friend and reality which you are, you are one and the same reality. You are eternally united with her and with everybody else. You are eternally united with them. Because it's the same reality, the same substance. You think about it, there is no separation, there is no loss. If we grasp Vedanta in its true sense. Now comes the last great point. Swami Vivekananda says, if your reality is God and my reality is God, then everybody else's reality is God too. How do we relate to them? Swami Vivekananda says, never approach anyone or anything except as God. What a powerful sentence. It's a mantra. The people we approach in life, the situations we approach in life, you know, whether it's physical health or a job situation or a frustration in a relationship or whatever, the good or the bad, whatever, all of that, Swami Vivekananda says, never approach anything except as God. It is God which is appearing. Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss, appearing in all those forms. The moment you approach people in that sense, our approach automatically will be worship. And worship, the expression of worship is service. The expression of love is service. So the service to living beings, knowing them to be God. Shiva, Jnana, Jiva, Seva is a formula Swami Vivekananda learned from Sri Ramakrishna. You worship God in the ignorant by teaching, by education. You worship God in the hungry by giving food. You worship God in the sick by giving medical treatment. In, the, in our hospital in Banaras, I, I haven't seen this myself, but I gather there is a day in which all the doctors and nurses and the monks, uh, they, they go to the patients and physically worship them with flowers. Yes, as a symbol to remind themselves and remind everybody else what is going on here. Of course, rest of the year, I'm sure they give injections and medicines and things like that. <laughs> you can't keep giving flowers to a sick person. But the idea is, the idea is converting medical treatment into spiritual practice, education into spiritual practice, relief activities in floods and disasters and earthquakes into spiritual practice. We are not helping a person. It's a privilege to be able to do that because God has given us that opportunity to serve, to serve others. If I give time and money and service, isn't it so much less for me? Swami Vivekananda is harsh on this kind of thinking, you know. He says, give, for it will be taken from you. Nature, what nature has given to us, will, it will take away very, very soon, it will take away. It will take away money, it will take away health, it will take away life itself. Before it is snatched from us, snatched from our claws, let our hands turn this way, let it, let it flow. And when we'll give, do not, Swami Vivekananda says, do not look back upon what you have given. You know, to gloat over, I've given so much. If you look back upon what you have given, your ocean becomes a drop. Hmm. There was this boy who came to Swami Vivekananda in Calcutta. Swamiji, I close the doors and windows of my room and I sit and meditate, but I have no peace of mind. Swami Vivekananda thundered. My boy, if you know what is good for you, you will open the doors and windows of your house. Go out, look at the people who are suffering, the sick, the ignorant. Help them, serve them. You will find peace of mind. The boy was not convinced. He said, if I serve the sick, won't I get infected? And Swami Vivekananda was furious. He says, there is no, no salvation for one such as this, you know. 
The one who shall lo lose his life for the sake of God shall gain life. The one who seeks to protect life, to cling on to life, shall lose life. Our true life is infinite. Swami Ramakrishnananda, who was in our ashram, who has set up the um, ashram in Chennai, in Madras, he had a very hard time of it in South India at that time. So much struggle. Sister Devamata, she went from America and she stayed in the monastery for some time watching Swami Ramakrishnananda. One day she was listening to him speaking about the struggles in his life. And Sister Devamata writes in her memoirs, I felt so indignant that a saintly soul like the Swami had to undergo so much suffering. And he said, I couldn't restrain myself and I said to Swami, Swami, why must you suffer? The Swami immediately said, what are you saying? My true life is infinite. This little life belongs to the Lord. Let him play with it as he will. It's not just poetry. It's not just rhetoric. It's not just a nice theory. Vedanta claims it will show it to you to the point where even the most skeptical, the most agnostic, the most materialistic, reductive scientist also will say, I'm not convinced, but I cannot deny it. How do we, one last point, how do we come to this? And Swami Vivekananda says, there are these three stages, the Upanishads talk about it. Listen to these truths. Dwell upon these truths. Meditate deeply upon these truths. Do not rush to put it into practice. People say that, Swami, I liked it What when you said all this, but the moment I go back out of the center into the freeway 101 and there's a traffic problem, I forget that I am existence consciousness bliss. <laughs> it all disappears. Don't rush into practice. Swami Vivekananda says, listen to this again and again, think well upon it. Tell yourself again and again, I am that existence consciousness bliss till it tingles with every drop of your blood. Out of the fullness of the, of the heart, not only words come, Swami Vivekananda says, out of the fullness of the heart, actions will come. Naturally then you will act from your conviction, then it will be easy. So, hearing and studying these truths consistently, systematically, and working out all doubts, mind will throw up doubts. So those uh, I'll announce beforehand, if you, I'm sure you have doubts. After the talk, we will go to the um, greenhouse, the living room there, and we can have question answers after this talk. And after being convinced about it, meditate deeply upon it, and try to live up to it in your life. Then you will find that, we will find in our lives, it becomes a living reality. I pray to Sri Ramakrishna, the Holy Mother, Swami Vivekananda, May these ideals become living realities in this very life itself. <laughs>